And so the question to myself is, okay, what is my goal of working in tech? Some people want to climb the corporate ladder and be VP of product. Some people, you know, want to start companies. But for me, I was thinking about what's my goal. It was very clear to me that I wanted to experience it all. And when I looked at the market at the time, it was clear to me that largely there are three ways to make money on the internet. One was you build a SaaS product and then you make money through monetizing sort of a recurring revenue model. The second thing is that you build a transactions marketplace. Usually it's a double-sided marketplace. What I mean by double-sided is that you have buyers on the side, you have sellers on one side, you have to build up the both buyer-seller dynamic in order to create a marketplace and you monetize through taking a transaction fee, being a platform. That's the second thing. And then the third way to make money online is to sell now, what people don't realize about these three things is that the business model pretty much dictates what type of company, who you sell to, and the culture of the company. Welcome to Brave. Learn from Southeast Asia's best tech leaders. Build the future, learn from our past, and stay human in between. No BS on success. I'm Jeremy Ao, venture capitalist, Sarah founder, Harvard MBA, science fiction nerd, and dad of two daughters. Every week, we debate startup news, interview change makers, answer listener questions, and share personal insights. Join our movement of over 40,000 members and get transcripts, resources, and community at www.bravesea.com. Stay well and stay brave. Are you a business owner? CFO or engineering lead who's tired of grappling with outdated finance processes? Are you frustrated at the high costs of card payments or find yourself bogged down by manual financial tasks? It's time for a change. Meet Acme Technology. Our software enables you to connect directly with your bank of choice to automate all of your finance and payments processes. Enjoy real-time reconciliation and direct-to-bank payments and payouts. No lengthy integration. Transform your banking experience into a Stripe-like experience, all with easy integration through streamlined APIs. Learn more at www.tryacme.com. Hey, Jax. Really excited to have you on the show. We've been friends for quite a few years now and really excited to be an angel investor in your company, but looking forward to share your journey. Awesome. Happy to be here. Could you share a little bit about yourself? Cool. Hi, everyone. I'm JX. I'm Singaporean, born and raised over here. My quick journey is that after going to high school here and going to the military, I went to U.S. for college, Penn for undergrad. I was at Stanford for grad school. And then after that, I actually came back and started my first job at the Singapore Economic Development Board, where I was mostly working on trying to get foreign multinationals, mostly tech companies, to get them to invest in Singapore in exchange for certain incentives that the government gives out. I was working there for a couple of years and then decided to actually move back to the US to SF. This was like the early to mid 2010s. And I felt that, you know, the Bay Area was the place to be. That was where everything was happening. And so I ended up joining Dropbox, which changed my life. I was there for a few years, working on, as product manager on a couple of different products like Dropbox Paper, Dropbox Teams. And then after that, I decided to jump into the ride-sharing industry. This was back in the day where everyone's talking about how the ride-sharing industry would, we would have self-driving cars in two years. In a way, it's kind of reminiscent of the whole AI hype right now. And Maybe this time is a bit different, but back then, I kid you not, like, we're just 
raising crazy amounts of money, all these autonomy, self-driving cars and all of that. You know, so I brought Lyft uh, and really experienced the entire daily Uber, the entire thing about the whole ride-sharing model, expansion into deliveries, different cities, etc. And after that, I felt I was itching for something. You know, I just got married, no liabilities, dead, your kids. And so I just woke up one day and told my wife, hey, I think we should move to China. And so in the late 2010s, around teen, I moved to China, to Shanghai specifically, and joined ByteDance, which was then at a point of transiting. We had a really famous, popular news reading app called Tinker Total, today's headlines. And then we launched Douyin, which was the equivalent of the Chinese version of TikTok, acquired Musical.ly, merged it, rebranded it as TikTok and launched it. And so I was there at ByteDance for about one and a half, two years. And then in 2019, moved back to Singapore, joined in Dallas as the chief product officer. So did that for about three to four years and really experienced the entire growth over COVID, which really gave us a crazy growth. I mean, we were growing 30% month on month for a solid maybe 20 months straight. And then most recently at the start of this year, decided to start Acme technology based on my collective past experiences most recently at Dallas on money movement, optimizing bank integrations. And here I am today. Amazing. What a journey. Let's go all the way back to the beginning, right? So there you are at UPenn. Why did you pick the major? Yeah. Everyone shares this joke about Penn uh, and it goes like that. You know, how many kids from Harvard does it take to change a light bulb? Uh, the answer is one. The person who holds the light bulb in the world revolves around him or her. You know, and then how many light bulbs does it take for someone to change it? At Princeton, the answer is 12 because you need four to plan, four to execute, four to do after action review and all of that. And then how many kids from Penn does it take to change the light bulb? Uh, and the answer is one and they give you 12 credits for it. The reason I share this story is because at Penn, I actually did two degrees. I did a degree in engineering. It's called systems engineering. And I also did a degree in finance for a Ward School of Business with concentrations in finance and operations improvement. And Penn was great because it was probably the only school that allowed me to study two pretty different disciplines, engineering and business, and yet allowed me to have a life. And I chose that quite particularly. I think what many people don't know that I don't, you know, I guess I don't really have an opportunity to talk about is in Singapore, all Singaporeans have to go to the military and that sets us back or rather we, we sort of matriculate three years later. But what the benefit of that is that it gives us actually three options to apply to US colleges. And I only got to Penn on my third try. And for my first two tries, I only applied to Penn. And that was because Penn was the only school that I mentioned that sort of gave you and allowed you. I mean, it was one of the few schools with the undergraduate business school. I mean, Berkeley was another one. And also a really pretty decent engineering school. And so I didn't know what I wanted to do but it was clear to me that these two were important disciplines. And so now in Penn, it was a lot of fun. Amazing. I thought what was interesting was that's exactly what happened to me as well. I didn't do well in JC. So I yeah. basically studied my SATs in army, got my yeah. stuff together. And the second year of national service, I applied and got into UC Berkeley. So yes, yeah. that's one of the benefits is if you screw up your life before army, yeah. army gives you two yep. years. Well, hey, if anyone's listening to this, thinking about whether they themselves are a kid, should go to NS, you know, come talk, come talk to us, man. That's right. And so what's interesting is that you went on to basically do a quick master's uh, at Stanford. Could you share more about that? Yeah, Stanford changed my life. Many things changed my life, but Stanford in particular. And, and the reason why was when I was a sophomore, which is the second year of college, there was one winter break. And instead of coming back to Singapore, I took a trip out to visit some friends at Stanford. And when I was there, it blew my mind. And the reason was because Penn, for those who are not familiar with, I guess, schools in the US, but the University of Pennsylvania Wharton School of Business, it's a very pre-professional school. And what I mean by that is people will go to Penn, they come out doing one of three jobs, right? You either go into consulting, you go into be an investment banker or a sales and trading. That was the big thing in the 2010s, the early 2010s. And it was very, you know, all your internships were lined up, visits to Wall Street, you go to banks, all of these recruiting events and everything. And when I went to Stanford, it was such 
a breath of fresh air because I just met people who just want to do whatever they want to do. I, I met this who's now a friend of mine who's just interested in becoming a vegan and all he cared about was telling people why they should be a vegan. And I just thought like, wow, that was so refreshing. But remember, when I went to Stanford, it was like 2010, right? I visited first in May 2009. I started my master's in 2010, 2011. And that was the Hades of the Valley. I kid you not, where I was in Cooper Cafe, like Travis Kalanick came down and he was recruiting. He was like two tables down, right? The person sitting next to me probably discussing a startup idea that would be worth like worth like ten million dollars thing. So there's so much energy and so much, you know, and then I told that man I had to be there. And so what I actually did was I graduated in three years so that I could then go to Stanford and finish and do a master's there and pick my life. So what's interesting is that you went off to decide to become a product manager, right? And you did that multiple times. But how did you decide that product manager as a role instead of like you said you could have been on business development? Yeah. finance, you can done consulting. <laughs> so yeah. there you are. Yeah. So so in fact, I, I did a consulting internship and, you know, I I, I knew that I wouldn't survive, right? Uh, I mean, I did investment <laughs> banking internships too and it was not for me. But that's a really good question because the way I came to that decision was that uh, I was working for the Singapore EDB and I was thinking about, okay, what do I want to do next? The thing about EDB, EDB was one of my greatest jobs. I think it's still my most meaningful job that I've ever had in my career. And the reason is because we're creating jobs for other people. But when I was saying I was working, I was overseeing some tech companies, whether it's like companies like Apple, Twitter, etc. And the big part about me was that I knew that I wanted to be in tech because that gave me a flavor of what it was like. But the question is, what do I want to do in tech? And so I actually started my career at Dropbox as a data scientist. And the reason I did that was because I was trying to get back to the US, to the Bay Area after working in the Singapore government. And Back then, that was incredibly difficult because what people don't realize is that there were three things that were working against me. First thing is that I was based in Singapore trying to get a job in the US. And that in itself is like, you're not even there. People are like, dude, who are you, right? The second challenge was that when I was applying, I was trying to apply for a role. I knew I did, I couldn't really be a software engineer. And so the other roles, there's more of like a cultural nuance, that kind of stuff that you have to go into. You can't just like take tests and pass it stuff like that. And then the third thing was that having worked at the government, like even I went to good schools, what people care most about is your relevant work experience. What can you actually bring to the table? And data science kind of just like hit that sweet spot for me because you got to be technical, but also have some business intuition. And so that basically just allowed me to land at a job at Dropbox. And I was actually doing data science product analytics to support our partnership efforts. Uh, and back then, Dropbox, our biggest partner was Samsung. Dropbox came preloaded all the phones. And so just figuring out, hey, you know, how do you optimize that relationship, etc. But at Dropbox, when I started off with data scientists, it was fun, right? You crunch all the data, you work with all these models. This is back in the day, right? You don't have any LMs or anything. This is like actually you know, the kind of stuff that you're looking at. And it was fun. But what I realized and what hit me was that as a data scientist, my biggest job was that I'll be crunching the data, pull it all later, and then I present all my analysis on a silver platter and who was the person I was presenting it to? I was actually presenting it to the product manager because that him or her was calling the shots on how do we drive product, how we take an next step. And so I was like, dude, I have that job. Like, what am I doing? And so I was like, okay, let's go for it. And so actually within Box, uh, as a data scientist, I sort of found my way, we interviewed and transitioned to be a PM. And that was the calling. But that was also a very interesting question that you asked because if I were to rebind back the history of Silicon Valley and, and tech, new tech, the second wave of tech, I'm not talking about Silicon graphics and all of that. If you look at the mid when Facebook, Google, or anything was found, the first 10 years of Silicon Valley, which is when I would say probably around 2000 or maybe a bit more, was actually the year of the engineer, that first 10 years. You had to be a solid engineer, you build, etc. What was interesting was that the next phase was actually the years of the product manager. Because if you think about it, in 20. 
14 or 15, that was when Harvard Business Review says that the hottest job of the year is the PM. It's no longer being an investment banker, whatever it is, the PM. And what's interesting is that after that, I feel that the hottest job is actually, it was the year of the whole GTM. You have all of that product like growth and all of that. And the whole AI boom and everything, it sounds like it's going back again to being year of an engineer. But I mean, I share that to just share that context of the era that we're in. To put it very succinctly, I wanted to be a PM because I want to be in control of how this, what I want to build, working on something I was excited about that I could sort of manage and work on different things to build the chips of it. Amazing. And so you've done this experience at Dropbox and Lyft. And then you decided to cross the wall across 12 time zones and be in China and yes. also be on ByteDance, which is also a very different product as well. So could you share a little bit more about your thinking there? Yeah. When I was thinking about going to tech, what stood out to me was that when I joined Dropbox, it was my first tech job. And I was literally, you would call it six to eight years behind everyone else to start tech because three years in the military, I worked in the government for almost three years. And so by the time I got there, I was way behind. And so when I started my career in tech, I was very intentional about thinking about, okay, what do I want to extend my journey in tech? Because I kind of had an inkling that I wanted to start something. I didn't have the confidence. I didn't have the means. I didn't have the experience, but I kind of knew I wanted to start something. And so the question to myself is, okay, what is my goal of working in tech? I mean, people have different goals. Some people want to climb the corporate ladder and be VP of product. Some people you know, want to start companies. But for me, I was thinking about what's my goal. It was very clear to me that I wanted to exit all. And when I looked at the market at the time, it was clear to me that largely there are three ways to make money on the internet. One was you build a SaaS product and then you make money through monetizing sort of recurring revenue model. The second thing is that you build a transactions marketplace. Usually it's a double-sided marketplace. What I mean by double-sided is that you have buyers on the side, you have sellers on one side, you have to build up the both buyer-seller dynamic in order to create a marketplace and you monetize through taking a transaction fee, being a platform. That's the second thing. And then the third way to make money online is to sell ads. Now, what people don't realize about these three things is that the business model pretty much dictates what type of company who you sell to and the culture of the company. So what I'm basically getting down into is that these three different types of internet companies or making ways of making money actually dictated how I wanted to plan my career. And that's why I started off with Dropbox, which is a SaaS company. I moved to Lyft, which is a transactions marketplace. And then I moved to ByteDance, which sells ads. It's a consumer company with the added, I guess, bonus exposure of China. And the reason I share this is because if you're a SaaS company, usually SaaS are high margin businesses you are paid to be very thoughtful. You think about a company like Dropbox, it's the ancient Hebrew saying, measure 10 times cut once. We're very thoughtful because it's the way people work. We do a lot of user research and it's cushy, comfortable kind of experience. Relative to the second model, if you build a transactions marketplace, most likely you're in ride-sharing or e-commerce and it's very brutal because at, at, our court resets every day. The only number that matters is what's the number of trips you made that day. And you know, the next day you restarts, right? You don't really accumulate anything because one day you could be up the next day, if you're short of drivers, then, you know, Uber unleashed like, I don't know, $5 million worth of incentives. If you don't match it, you lose drivers and it's spiral effect because then you lose riders because they have longer ETAs and then it makes you have less drivers because they can't get rides as fast and the whole thing goes down. But it's a very brutal environment. And so when people think about, oh, wow, Uber, Lyft, why are people assholes and everything? It's because they have to do that. If you don't ship it today and you don't win the market today, it's gone. So that's like the second. And in the business model in the consumer market, it's brutal in the sense that most likely to sell ads, you have to be a consumer product because you need eyeballs, you need attention. So it's really 
really about very design product driven. You need to have a hit product. People want to use it. Like every scroll matters. The interaction frequency is very high. And so that kind of like dictated or influenced the way I thought about all three before deciding to start something. Amazing. And what did you learn from your experience at ByteDance? ByteDance was mind-blowing in so many. The reason I actually got to ByteDance was because I was at Lyft and People don't recognize this enough, but SF in San Francisco, when Lyft was headquartered based, it's a very diverse place. I work with people from all nationalities across different roles. And in my engineering team, I, I had quite a few engineers from China. And so as a product manager, I worked very closely with them and they moved from China. Some of them went to school here. Some of them did a master's in the US. But when I talked to them, I was just learning about all of these things that are happening in China. And if I take a detour, if you think about what happened in China, the first wave of Chinese tech, everyone knows them as BT, right? Right, Baidu, Alibaba, and Tencent. And these were like your Me Too copycat companies. They were modeled after the US companies. And you know, they started around the mid-2000s. And by, say, early 2010s, they have bloomed and blossomed. They've either gone public, they've basically monopolized and all of that. And so what happened in the history of Chinese tech is that in the early 2010s is when execs, people with experience, stepped away and started the next Chinese company. And I'm talking about companies like Didi, like Meituan and Tianping, who merged, like Pinduoduo, which is killing it now. You know, these companies actually started around the era of 2012. And if you give them three, four years to bloom, because you need to just, they need to just date. Around 2015 to 2018 was when they really blew. And back then, it was the whole Trump era, the whole divergence of the whole multi-bipolar world. Most people did not realize the rise of Chinese companies. These tech companies were like kicking ass, man. They were original. They, they didn't have any vestiges because they had experience and they were just growing at rapid pace. And people in the US don't really talk about that. Because firstly, you don't really read Chinese. You don't really care to... You're like, oh man, these companies, you're all preconceived notions. The two biggest preconceived notions. One is that, oh man, Chinese tech is fake tech. They're just like copycats. The other preconceived notion is like, oh shoot, Chinese tech back then was Chinese AI was massive because they don't have all these restrictions. They're going to take over the world. But it's very polarizing. And so that made me make the decision that said that, man, I have to go there and experience it. Because... There's so much happening that you just got to move it. You just got to experience it. There's only so much you're going to experience out here in the Bay Area. So that made me want to move. But the question is, where do I move to? Which company should I go to? And so what made me actually decide was that because I was at Lyft. So very naturally, I could go work at DD and Mobike and Ofo. Remember back then, bike sharing was like the hot. And I, I kid you not, I had offers that were extremely lucrative. My bike dance offer came in. It was actually almost half of my other offers in China. And the individual experience was very hard link because the first thing when I met them, well, firstly, everything was in Chinese. So shout out. My Chinese is actually not great. My wife is Taiwanese, but for those who are Singaporean and who know the Singapore system, I got a C5 or C6 for normal Chinese. <laughs> and I didn't even take higher Chinese. So the extent of how, how shitty my Chinese was, but I, I, I struggled and I, I went through it. But you know, in my first interview, they told me, hey, JX, you should take a pay cut coming here because we need to teach you to unlearn what you've learned in the US in order to excel as a product person in China, because in China, it's completely different. We have the stereotypes about how you go to Amazon screen, it's clean, you know, a few items, and then you go to like in screen and every inch is like, you know, sort of in a native information. That's just the tip of the iceberg. And so I felt that, shoot, wow, there's so much learning. It was very humbling. And so I joined ByteDance and it was mind blowing from so many different aspects. Number one, the work ethic is real. Man, we were working six days a week. And the thing is, people actually enjoy it. It's not like people are complaining, like, dude, what the heck and everything. I mean, at least at Binance on my team, people were hungry, man. They were like, wow, we have all these resources. 
we have all these different teams, we have all these markets to go capture, we have all these opportunities, let's go for it. That was the real feeling. It's not like, oh man, I'm forced to work at it. No, it's like people will hungry, that's one. The second thing is that because we're working with consumer products, specifically I was working on Resto, which is a music streaming product and only the Chinese will have that ambition that say that, hey, I think that Apple Music and Spotify was built based on listening, music listening habits of the 1990s. Because think about it, Spotify, Apple Music, you open the app, it's like the Sony Walkman, this man, you pick your song, you put it back in your pocket and then you listen, that's it. But we wanted to create and bring what Top did to YouTube to the whole music streaming service. We said, hey, music should be an evocative experience. You want to look at it, you want to comment, you want to like, stitch together different short videos together. Why can't people do that? And so it was a very novel and original original approach, if I may say so. But the second thing is that in, in the Chinese way of thinking, we're like, just let's make it happen, right? I bet you no one would think about taking out Spotify and Apple Music. I mean, the music licensing cost alone would kill you. But in Chinese, they don't have that package. You're just like, dude, let's go for it. But the last thing and the most important thing is that you just realize that China is a very diverse place. Coming from the US, you may have some preconceived notes. Coming from Singapore, you have some preconceived notions but in China I met some of the sweetest nicest and most hardworking people and just being able to work alongside them just getting me the psyche oof they really are forced to be reckoned with what were some of the differences from US product management versus Chinese product management from your perspective after what they mentioned in the interview yeah you know, a few things come to mind. And you know, I'm, I'm sure people will comment when we get some haters for this, but I think that the first thing that comes to mind is that in the US, you know, and you read about this and Elon Musk talks about the wokeism and everything, and you read about how he handled what happened at Twitter and everything. There's a lot of egalitarian, a lot of getting around the same page, let's all be inclusive and everything. And so what happens in the US is that as a product manager, you spend a lot of time working with your engineers, your designers, trying to sell them vision and see. Because I, I think people realize this, like the manager in product manager is fake. You don't manage anyone or anything. They don't report to you, right? The, the holy trinity in any tech company is engineering, product, and design. You are one of three. And a product manager, it's called a manager because you're the project manager of, of working with your engineering and your design counterparts. And you add each three reporting lines that go up to that senior leadership. And of course, as the PM, you drive the product, but they don't report to you. And so you spend a lot of time selling the vision, getting people on board and all of that. Now in China and ByteDance, I'm not making a judgment call whether it's good or bad, but the fact is like product in ByteDance holds a lot of it. To it. And so that when you lead a team and drive a team, like the engineers, you just say, let's just go. They just ask you how far. And so you don't really spend a lot of time trying to figure out, oh, how do you feel? You know, typical story of like you set an OKR and then you spend the next three months discussing an OKR. And by the time the next OKR is here in China, you fucking go, right? But the team is very united and very aligned and you just go. So that's what I think that it's very, it's okay. We just look Chinese leadership style. You just look to the leader. If I believe in a leader, I'll just go for it. That's what I think the second thing is that we talk about passion and talk about, hey, what do we want to do? In the US, it's very aligned in terms of, hey, I'm very passionate about X, Y, or Z. I want to go through that. I think in China, it's very different. It's more about the opportunity and it's more mercenary. And again, I'm not making a value judgment. It is what it is. And so I, I had a conversation with my data science manager at Baidats. He was employee number 100. So the guy has made it, right? He's probably made generational wealth, you know, given where it is. And I asked him, hey, like what makes you work so hard every day? And in your past eight years at Baidats, you think you've worked on, I don't know, call it 20 different products. So you feel that it's very transactional. Don't you want to work on some things? Like one period, you're going to work on this app. Another period, you're going to work on a different app. Because you know, Baidats or Chinese companies, 
sell us it. We just go for go after the opportunity. So we've launched so many different apps. We have fight that. We have auto apps. We have education apps. We have music apps. We have all different things. Like I say, you don't know, it's very transactional. And he told me this anecdote. He said, "Hey Jags, all I care about is that I just want to win." And you know, for me to get to like high school, I've beaten out I don't know a few hundred thousand people in my village, right? For me to go to Peta and then after to get to Baidats, right? Like for me, it's just that's my sense of achievement. And I, I think you can't take that away, and you can't discount that too. So yeah, amazing. And so around this time frame, you made a decision to come back to Singapore and eventually, and that's where we also had a lot of discussions. And then you eventually decided to take the other route that I did not take, but you went on to build and be the chief product officer and later the COO for Endowers. Could you share about that? Yeah. You know, it's funny. I actually remember distinctly us meeting 2019 uh, and you had just sold your company, you coming back, having chat at Tiong Baru Bakery at Tiong Baru or something. For me, I actually was very close to starting a company back then. And this is where, you know, I want to give a shout out to Kai Yuan who built Rocket Academy. Kai and I almost went down the path of building Rocket Academy together. And I was the original CEO and he was the chief education officer. And I mean, this is very early. Rocket Academy is 100% Kai and all of that. But we were working intensely for a couple of months deciding if it would work or not. But for me, I sort of took a step back because I think what I cared about was like, hey, am I truly passionate about this space? And I clearly was not, right? I mean, I'm a big believer in it, but it's not me. Kai is and he went on to do it. But I'm honest, is that I nearly started something and that was that in me. But how I came out to Endowers was that, you know, when I came back after experiencing bike dance and all different companies, it was very clear to me that there were just a couple of sort of constraints that I knew I could put in myself. One was that I didn't want to be based in Singapore for personal reasons. It is what it is. And so because of that, what? company can I build a billion dollar business in? My answer at the time is that it has to be in financial services because if I wanted to do something that's e-commerce or social or something then I should be in Indo or Vietnam and I did seriously ask my wife like hey can we move to Indo and she said fuck off right and it's not happening. <laughs> so you know we had kids she had a job here and everything and so I was like okay that's fine and financial services it is because financial services is kind of the only industry where Singapore truly is a hub that punches above our weight. Everything else it's still possible and haters gonna hate people People are going to come at me for it. Don't add me, right? But hey, that was my assessment. The question is, where in fintech do you want to play? So I analyzed the market and what came to me was that it was very obvious. In fintech, there's only eight possibilities. And the way I divided the market was that you could sell to consumers or to businesses, to B or to C. And then there are only four main ways of segmenting the market, which is the life cycle of money. First, you spend money, which is payments tech. Two is you save and invest your money, which is small tech. Three is you protect yourself, which is intro tech. And then the fourth is you borrow or lend money, which is lending technology. And back then in teen, my assessment was wealth tech is the place to be. Why? Payments tech is gone, man. Back then, Stripe was like, it was a hundred pound gorilla, right? You know, I don't want to compete there. Intra tech and lending tech, my assessment back then was that as technologists, ooh, it's hard to pull off. It's hard to execute because other than a pretty UI, you had all of these things behind it and I didn't feel I could pull it off. Wealth tech on the other hand was interesting because the entire goal of wealth tech is to kind of augment or almost essentially scale an RM. And that was all technology. But also remember 2019 was also the time whereby you had eight robot advisors pop up in the span of a year, right? You had your stash away, Scythe and Dallas and all of these different companies that were coming up. And for people like us or people with some US exposure, in 2019, the first thing we have thought of is like, dude, what are these jokers smoking? Because we have seen examples of Wealthfront, of Betterment, of how they all died in the US. And the US is already the best market in the world, the richest country in the world. 
it didn't work out. So what more? How is it going to ever prove that it's going to work out in Singapore? And what more when you have seven other competitors in such a small space? But I truly believe that was that area that I could leverage technology, which is what I was all about. So I actually spoke to all eight founders and, and Dallas was my winning course. Yeah, great team, great philosophy. I really identified with team. Uh, and so I went in and said that, hey, you guys started already, but you know, kind of make me almost like a co-founder. Let's do it together. And so I just jumped in and we never looked back. We just rescaled. Amazing. What a journey. And what was your experience? I mean, there was three years and Andawas grew like crazy during this time frame. I also know Gregory. He also sold me and that's how I became a Gregory and Dallas client as well. Yes. So but I'm kind of curious, like what you had to do, what you felt had to happen. I think when people think about financial services, what people mostly associate with that is basically what in Android terms the call the front end, which is the mobile app or the website. And people think that, oh, wow, this is such a sleek user experience. You make it so easy for people to invest money. What people don't realize is that is actually the easiest part because that's classic product management, right? And as a good product manager, you should be able to do it almost with your two eyes closed. Interview people, hire a good designer, work, obsess about your users. What people don't realize is that the most difficult part about financial services is actually the platform and the infrastructure that supports it. So taking any tech in, in particular as an example, the two most difficult backend integrations that any wealth tech would have to deal with, one is actually your integration with your broker because you got to be executing your trades and two is integrating the banks for money movement because ultimately as a wealth management or any broker, your job is to exchange a security for an underlying amount of money. And that's when you invest. And then when you withdraw or redeem, it's going the other way around. But what people don't realize is that the simple act of like, if I'm any wealth tech player and you deposit money into my bank account, the money comes to my bank account, but my bank is actually not integrated in any way to my bank end. It's almost a black box. It's like, think about it. You have your Steady Bank personal account or DPS bank account. Any money that comes in or out, the most you get is a push notification in a mobile phone. But you can't really say that, hey, if I get $10, can you reflect it in my Excel app, in my budgeting app? That's essentially what we're replicating on the B2B side, right? And at Dallas. And what people don't realize is that real tech is really hard because of all of the infrastructure that supports that. And especially in a place in Southeast Asia, whereby the infrastructure is almost more decent, it's not mature, and it's different. So launching in the US, it's pretty cool. You have ACH, kind of standard with that. Even if you figure out in Singapore, in Hong Kong, in Indonesia, and Malaysia, it could almost completely be different. And so I think that a lot of the learnings is that a lot of why a wealth tech is good was not just because of the front end, the UI, and what you see on screen. It's really mm. behind the scenes. Is your money really safe? How are you piping your money? How are you getting notifications? How are you informing users? What happens when there's an error? How do you actually make sure that every single cent is accounted for and actually flows through the pipes? You know, integrating with fact machines is not even a, a unheard of things because there are certain things that only runs through certain trades that only run through factory what a crazy time. And Gregory is a prior guest of the Brave yes. Podcast. So is Kyren from Rock Academy. But I know, remember you and I were discussing about this, but some experiences about what you experienced at Endowers would later become the inspiration for Acme. So I'd love for you to share more about that. That's right. You know, at Endowers, when I came in, I was sharing just now, I thought that my job is that, dude, I'll be that swanky chief product officer obsessing about the UI, about how people would invest and so make it so easy. They don't need an agent and talk to anyone and all of that. And it's true. We are accomplish a lot of that. But the 
area where I spent the most of my time at is actually all of the infrastructure operational things that I was sharing just now. And in particular, like let's talk about a bank integration, pick any bank you want. Back in 2019, people don't realize that take Singapore, for example, banking APIs is kind of a new thing. Like DBS, who is a, a leader in a lot of these areas, and they call their API set rapid, right? The DBS rapid APIs, not rapid, not the one with the Y, the tech company, but R-A-P-I-D. DBS rapid set of APIs probably came out in, I don't know, 2015, 2017, and when all of the other banks came along, the transition from host to APIs really only came about in the late 2010s. And that's when it first came out. By the time it became a bit more popular, banks a bit more open, it's kind of like the early 2020s. So it's a very new thing. And so when we first started, everything was manual. When someone deposited their money in, of course, how we all start is that you look at, you open your bank portal, you you see who is after you download CSV, you do all of these manual operations. And I spent a lot of time on that. And I did that for three reasons. The first is that when you invest in a wealth tech company, the most important step you can do that we need to do after you sign up is to essentially get your money. Because if you don't deposit in, forget about what fancy ETFs or mutual funds or stocks. If you don't get your money in, you can't invest, right? So it was crucial to ensure that the experience and if you go to Endowers now, the moment you deposit money, within 20 seconds, we recognize that money and tell you a push notification on Endowers app saying, hey, we received your money, we've gone through the KYC and everything all checks done, we're ready for you to invest. And that is a crucial experience because if you don't have that, if you have to wait like a business day or two business days, you've lost all trust. And the way to build that is not like the banks will have fancy APIs for you to deal with. This is not like a Stripe or you know, Stripe Connect integration. It's really going down bare metal, bare bones to figure out how this works. And so that's what. But the second thing is that in financial services, especially if you're like, you got to take that licensing very serious. And that auditability, the fact that no money exchange means that you have to be connected to a bank account. You can't afford to have manual process because you don't want someone downloading an Excel sheet at an additional line item, copy, paste errors. You don't want any of that. So these two things Things are really driving it. So I spent so much time obsessing, agonizing over it because number one, it was key to the client experience and people, it's very underrated. People don't talk about that. But number two, it was key to a license, maintaining a license and getting a license. And so it came so naturally to me. It's almost like I went to bed one day, I woke up the next day, I was thinking about, hey, I think it's time for me to start something. And I knew that this is what I was going to work on, which is how do we make it easy for people to integrate their bank accounts? Because there's so many use cases for your bank account right now. So it's been a year of you building this and you had a clear idea of the problem. And now you've actually had a year of reality actually building this, right? And selling this as well. And we talked yeah. about this a little bit. So why have you learned along the way of this past one year of actually building it? Yeah, I think I can summarize that into three things. The first thing that was surprising to me is ABC. Stands for always be closing in that. I never thought I would be a salesperson. I was always like part guy. I was like, hey, you know, let's talk to users. Let's figure out how to build this. But when you start a company as a founder and the people I've talked about this a lot, it's really about selling. I told myself that I need to take at one point in time at least five meetings a day with five companies. You just got to be out here selling. And so when I started, I thought that I'm going to build this kick-ass API suite. We're going to come and connect and it's going to sell and front sells itself to no and that's other BS. So number one, I've had to sell. That's all I primarily do. Primarily talk to customers and it's ex extremely gratifying. And I feel that people don't recognize this enough, but I'm going to go out there and say this. Singapore is the best market to build a B2B product because you just get so much iterative cycles of talking to companies because the entire city is so compact. If I were to be in SF, driving to Redwood City lives one hour there and back, right? You know, I at most talk to like, I don't know, one or two companies a day. In Singapore, my record is I've talked to 12 companies a day, 30 minute slots, all the way you start at 7.30 a.m. all the way until 11.30. And it's around. And 
the beauty about selling is that when you do it in person, it really makes a difference. You know, over Zoom, over demos, you just lose it in person, connecting, you know, with that person live. That's great. And so I think that Singapore, you just, especially at the early stages when you need to iterate. I mean, of course, there's market size constraints or whatever, but I've met over 200 businesses, CEOs, Talkies in Singapore, and it's great. I've learned so much and it's just so inspiring to see how they build this. The second thing is that when I started this business on bank integrations, you know, mostly people use me to collect bank transfer payments. People use me for reconciliation, for payouts, uh, for FX. I thought that my use cases, my customers would all be fintech companies. Mm. It's not true. My first five customers are zero fintech companies. These are like your education tuition centers. You know, you have 10,000 students that you need to collect on a recurring basis instead of using credit cards. Why don't you use eGyro or Gyro to pull money from your bank account? These were like office clean companies, you know, receiving 200 invoices a day, you know, shout out to Luce. We did a customer story on them. They needed automatic reconciliation. Without us, they took a week to reconcile. They go back and say, hey, we received your payment. Here's a receipt. With our API, they do it instantly. They send a receipt. It's done. And so what shocked me was like, the market, right? So that was the second thing. And the third thing was that we really feel the pool in the market evolving. One big reason of that is that if you take a step back and observe payments, you know, we don't count ourselves in the payments company. We're just banking. Payments is just one application of that. But just know this, how many bank transfer-based payments have been almost taking over Singapore? You go to any hawker centers, they ask for a QR code, you go to Shopee, Lazada, you know, what Shopee says is that you use PayNow gives you 45% off and you click on the payment options, you have PayPal, like your bank account, you have PayLa, you have PayNow, you have Shopee Pay. These are all bank transfers instead of credit cards. And so it's really great to be experiencing a market pull when you're building something because the combination, the increase of reliance on banks, and also, unfortunately, these type of banks have not been keeping up. We see banks, as you know, started from SVB, Signature Bank, but closer to them in Singapore, Citibank, DBS, and all of that. And so the confluence of that just sort of puts us at a space where we can really be at the forefront of, hey, how do we create reliability? How do we create multi-bank? You know, how do we think about accepting bank chances and that? And so it's just been really great and fun to oh, be the middle of all that. Amazing. When you see moving ahead, obviously, you know, financial API is not just a Singapore issue, right? It's a regional issue. Right. It's a multi-market. But also, you can say it's multi-bank, multi-transaction type kind of problem as yep. well. Do you see yourself covering all of that? Or do you see yourself focusing on some priority areas? How do you think about that infrastructure build-out? Our philosophy in building the company and building our bank integrations is that we take an inside-out approach as opposed to an outside-in approach. What it means is that the outside approach is popularized by companies in the US, right? You have companies like Plant, which if you're in this space, you would heard off of the, and what they do and how they started is that, you know, they kind of like screen scrape and figure out, hey, this is your HTML. So why don't you log in with your username and password and then we'll sort of take that, log in on your behalf, memorize the bank statement, download button, download it and transcribe it. That's outside in approach. The inside out approach is working closely with the banks and say, hey banks, you know, I'm almost like a trader. Let's work with you, you know, give me a trust. Let's build all that. So the way we see ourselves is that we want to be a bank enabler, right? We want to help banks and say that, hey, how do we help you get and make your APIs as similar and seamless as Stripe? Stripe has revolutions like for credit cards. Before Stripe came in, ooh, 
it was painful, you know, credit card, you had to find your own processor, your own interchange, et cetera. I think that bank transfers are at this space right now. And I think they're in a sweet spot. So if you ask me, how do I think of our business? I would say that we start off with thinking about, okay, we want to integrate with different banks first. And our focus is actually the banks and not the geographies. Because once you get the banks that say, if I have, let's say, a multinational bank like City, SCB or HSBC, we effectively can support them across the different 50 countries because they want to largely keep it the same. But we feel that's just the basis of our ambition, right? Our ambition is that the foundational layers, all of their bank relations across different banks, different countries. But I think that there's so much to build on top of that, right? You have all of the whole, you know, I predict that fraud by bank transfers is going to be a multi-billion dollar industry. Multi-billion. Because right now, a lot of fraud is focused on credit card fraud. But when it goes to bank transfers, look at all your PLR scams, you know, a lot of scams. It's a very different skill set because the vector is very different. And we want to be at the forefront for that, right? There's also all of these things about, you know, AR, AP, you know, accounts receivable, accounts payable. The heart of that is your bank to receive money and to pay out money. There's a whole opportunity there. Transactions monitoring, that's a huge other opportunity. And then eventually, how do you support lending more efficiently? There are all of these different aspects. But the thing about building a startup, what I realized is that the era of like saying that, dude, I'm going to be like a $10 billion company and do all of that is over, right? I think that the goal is for us to be really heads down, build the foundations right, and sort of assess opportunities as they come. But for now, we're hyper-focused. We just want to be the best way for you to integrate with your bank in order for you to get the maximum value. Amazing. On that note, could you share about a time that you personally have been brave? I think that the biggest sort of brave, I mean, I don't think I'm very brave. For example, I think that, you know, my, my wife gave birth to our kids. I think that's your wife alone is like really late. But I think that the one thing would definitely like stepping out and ask to start acting. And the reason why is because what you don't realize is that, you know, I've only worked for, for like really good companies. I've been very fortunate to work for like, you know, a Dropbox or a Lyft or a ByteDance and then in Dallas. There's a certain sheen when you work on that, right? That your identity is part of like, oh, JX was, you know, Chief Product Manager. ByteDance JX was Chief Product Officer at COO and in Dallas. But what's very different is that when you start something, you're nothing, right? People don't care about you. You don't get invited to any conferences, any meetings or anything. And so for me, you know, I have kids and everything. And so I'm doing well, right? Hey, is that the point in time that I want to step up step out and give all of that, you know, and way up. And that's especially sort of difficult because when you join a startup, you do a startup and I've been in it and that was like three, three and a half years, you really only reap the benefits after that because the first three years you're just struggling, right? Nobody knows and that was everything. And so the question is like, man, do I want to go and do it all over again? And I mean, the last thing is also very personal, which is like your family and personal circumstance, right? Like the biggest alienation when you start a company, as many of us who listen to this cast know, is your family. And after having just gone through that, especially with COVID, it's like, you they just want to do that again so soon. Is it too soon, right? But for me, I think that there's just an insatiable desire and that when you spot and see an opportunity they're excited about, you just can't unsee it. And the biggest sort of, I guess, bare thing I had to do is to tell myself, okay, how do I turn all of sort of these downside of things and look at that as an opportunity. For example, I hate meeting people. I hate like spending my entire day out. How do I see that as something that would be interesting? Like learning about these different stories instead of like something that, hey, how can I take the opportunity to put myself out there? Because I'm really putting myself out there. You know, the number of times that people have asked me, hey, JX, I think you have a great background. I believe that you can build this. But like me, may die tomorrow. Why should I trust you? Right? It's very personal. It's like, oh man, that's really like, I don't know, say attacking, but it's almost short of like attacking, you know, who, who you are as a person. And the number of times you go through people say, that, hey, dude, this won't work, right? We want to work with a bank, take a queue number, right? It'll be three years before and all of that. So training that off for this, I, I think that, you know, I would say that it probably would be personally the bravest thing about it. 
Yeah, I totally agree with you. And I think it's such a difficult decision to make. I guess my last question I have for you is, how did you end up making a decision? Did you consult your friends? Did you think about it? You know, how how did you finally decide? As I've shared, it's been something I've been thinking about for a long time. And it was moments, right? Like, you know, Thanksgiving during the holiday period where you're traveling, you're like, oh man, what if I do this? I think that when you're in the you're in the hustle and bustle of like trying to make things work, you're fixing stuff every day. It's really hard. I think for me, what helped was that before I stepped out, so I, I stepped away at the end of last year, early this year, first gen. I had my kid. I had you know one of my kids was born sort of in the middle to late last year, and I went on paternity for the first time. That was my third kid. I, I've never taken paternity. I've been working everything. I'm not proud of it, but it's just like what it is. And my third kid, I took. I can't remember. I think it was something like like two or three weeks or four weeks off. And that gave me an opportunity to really evaluate and think about, hey, what is it that I really want? I feel in my late 30s, it's okay. You, know, you want to have the energy to do it and all that. So when I came back from Perthia, I wasn't expecting to do anything. But I, that gave me a lot of foundational sort of like strengths and that I was pretty clear. So when I was really deciding, of course, you know, you talk to people and everything. But ultimately, I would say that it's really a decision that you make. I talked to my wife said, I hate something. Do I have the best thing to do that? And I think when that was clear, I think that things flowed right naturally. But I would say the biggest thing is the pool. The pool of, man, there is just this sliver of time where this whole bank integration thing could kind of and feel that you can always go back to all of these other jobs. And so we just went for it. And it's crazy that it's been 11 months. But I think we're in a good spot. We're a great team, great set of customers. And just every day waking up, you know, I feel that there's nothing like starting something at all. I wake up and even now I feel so excited about the day. You know, it's like, wow, you know, that's just so much to do with so many opportunities and it really kind of gives you that and maybe that's how you know that you're in the right spot. Awesome. On that note, I'd love to summarize the three big takeaways I got from this conversation. First of all, thank you so much for sharing about your early journey as a student and how you chose your various degrees, but also what you were like as a student and how you eventually went on to you know take on your first roles with EDB and as a product manager. So I thought it was really fascinating to hear about those early aspirations, but also uh, how you're thinking about your own future at that point in time. Secondly, thank you for, so much for sharing about the contrast of certain learning experiences that you had, right? So the US versus China, your bite down experience about how you as a product manager had to learn different things, but also unlearn different things that you had picked up along the way. And I think it was nice to have the exploration and contrast of all of that and how you eventually brought all of that to bear at your job at Endowers, where you work very hard to make sure that you're able to accelerate not just the front end, but also a lot of the infrastructure and the transactions that had happened. Lastly, thank you so much for sharing about Acme. It was really great to hear about why you felt the pull to build something, but also to build in the finance space. And actually, it was a great encapsulation, actually, of your search process, which I remember you and I discussing, which is not just what you were attracted to, but also a very intentional search process to look for you know, a great sector a great idea and taking the time and patience to yeah take a job at Endowers as a chief product officer but eventually encountering the problem that you really felt that you could bring all of your prior talent and experience and passion and skills to bear so really fascinating to hear about the vision for Acme and how you're tending to build this out it's across bank transfers but also across the region and across four different customer personas as well on that note thank you so much JX for sharing awesome thanks for having me thank you for listening to Brave if you enjoyed this episode, please share the podcast with your friends and colleagues. We would also appreciate you leaving a rating or review. Head over to www.bravesea.com for member content, resources, and community. Stay well and stay brave. Stay brave.